Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Episode 5. There are a couple of observations I'd like to share with you, one more current, and one I've learned over a lifetime. I recently flipped through a magazine with some decorator tips in it and came to a page with the title, Finding Wabi Sabi. That's two words, W-A-B-I-S-A-B-I. According to the article, Wabi in Japanese means simplicity, and Sabi means beauty in age. The writer says that wabi-sabi is an aesthetic of appreciating and embracing the imperfect, because nothing is perfect, permanent, or completed. This is applied in the article to imperfect organic materials and accessories in decorating. However, I thought to apply it to myself. Imperfect, incomplete, I am wabi-sabi. Then I thought that could apply to all people of a certain age, then perhaps to anything. What a great concept wabi-sabi is. Embrace the imperfect. The other observation is one that I've appreciated as a writer myself, which is that everyone has a story. And most people will share their story with you if you really listen. And for me, almost all stories are interesting. So this month's offering is a story in which the protagonist would definitely classify herself as wabi-sabi. It is called and this is meant only for your amusement, La Pedicure, a symphony in four movements. First movement, sonata. She seldom leaves the house since her husband died. It's not that she's agoraphobic or fearful of driving, not a bit fearful, she tells herself. After all, she does go out to the occasional medical appointment and, weekly, at odd hours when few people are there, to the supermarket. She simply prefers to stay home. She skims the newspaper headlines and goes directly to the arts and food sections. She listens to music, reads the books she orders from the Internet, watches late-night vintage movies, plays online solitaire, and eats whatever she pleases every day. But this morning, she will have to go out. My descent into hell, she says to the compact mirror as she scrupulously applies full makeup, covering up age spots and wrinkles with thick foundation. She only looks at what is necessary, eyebrows, lips, cheeks, never the whole face at once, and never, ever the full sagging body. Her wardrobe is still in winter colors, although it is early spring. Darker clothes make her look invisible, black on bottom, gray on top, and a scarf. She picks a white one with black dots. She sprays on white linen perfume that smells like fresh soap. This is the best I can do, she says. Here I come, netherworld. She holds conversations aloud, as though communing with another person, both herself and not herself. Sometimes she speaks with inanimate objects, sometimes quite satisfactorily. As she laces her shoes, she says to her feet, You and I know that some petite young Asian woman will frown and speak to her co-workers in a soft language known only to them, and they will snicker at this old neon white wraith with ugly toes. Even though her ride is only 15 minutes from her little house to the nail salon, she turns on the radio. She never changes the station from classical music. She had once been a concert pianist. She listens to Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, remembering how she played it at Carnegie Hall in New York 22 years ago. 
It was a challenging piece she'd played many times before. But that night, she struggled to keep the tempo. Her hands didn't move along the keys the way they should. Her doctor ultimately diagnosed it as the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. That was the last time she performed that piece, or any piece, in public. She drives down the street to the town road, to the state road, and parks in the mini plaza. Next to the salon is a busy auto parts store and a Chinese all-you-can-eat buffet for half price on Mondays. Second movement, Adagio. The salon is well-appointed with eight pedicure stations, eight manicure stations, and six nail-drying stations. The ceiling is painted sky blue with white clouds, and there are two TV screens on adjacent walls. Nondescript music plays softly in the background as white noise. It's like a dentist's office, she thinks, closing the door behind her and resisting an impulse to back out and drive away as quickly as possible. Inside, she registers at the reception desk with her name and procedure. Just pedicure, rather than spa pedicure, which is like the difference between a teeth cleaning and a root canal. She takes off her black raincoat as the receptionist, the owner's wife, directs her to pick a nail polish from the multiple shelves hanging on the far wall. There must be a hundred choices, ranging from heady Lamar red to fluorescent orange, along with some blues, purples, and silver. She picks a bottle in the pink family today. While she never polishes her fingernails, she goes wild with color on her toenails. But not today. Today, someone else will be looking at her feet. As she proceeds to the next available pedicure station, every brown vinyl chair she passes is filled with legs of various sizes and hues dangling into the pedicure sinks like stalactites from disembodied, rolled-up jeans. I didn't get my first pedicure until the day I could no longer pull my foot up to my lap, she muses. But the clientele here seems to average a flexible age of 30. Her pedicurist is the youngest, smallest, and loveliest woman in the salon. She wears her shiny black hair in a ponytail and looks like a Margaret Keene painting of a wide-eyed teenager. I wonder, she thinks, if this youngster is from Vietnam. She acknowledges the irony of this when she was a college student protesting the American involvement in Southeast Asia. Her pedicurist wasn't even born yet. Vietnam now is not the Vietnam then. Was it worth all those lives? Her younger brother, her only brother, died there. Alan wasn't in country for more than a week when he stepped on a landmine. Don't go where the road don't go. Didn't they teach him that? She still has the gold star her mother hung in the front window of their home. Politics both dismays and bores her now. She's seen it all before. There will always be wars, uprisings, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, floods, disease, starvation, corrupt politics and immoral politicians, new artists, new music, new fashion, new celebrities. So what? None of it matters to her anymore. What is your name, she asks the pedicurist. Bin that mean peaceful. That's a lovely name. Bin doesn't ask her name in return. I suppose she's not interested. I'm only a pair of feet to her. Bin speaks only minimal English and asks, what do? Just cut and polish, please. That's all. The pedicurist points to her notable calluses and makes a scrubbing motion. Does the old lady want pumice? No, thank you. At this age, her skin is thin. Yes, I am thin-skinned, she thinks. But I cannot describe this to her, so I smile to show I truly appreciate her offer. No? Bin again makes the scrubbing motion. She shakes her head no in response. 
Bin seems perplexed. After all, it's part of the package. She shrugs and gently places her customer's feet into the hot water, then looks up inquiringly. Massage? No, she cannot bear the pressure of massage on her bony shins. But this defies explanation, so again she says, no, thank you, with a wide smile, even wider than before. Bin nods somewhat reluctantly and proceeds to assemble her tools. Cloths, nail cutter, buffer, lotions, hacksaw. Lady married? Bin asks. I was, but my husband died. So sorry, Bin says. You all alone? She nods. She was alone because her son Tony and his wife Adina, of whom she was very fond, lived on the other side of the continent. But she is not going to go into all of this with a young pedicurist. You have cat? No. Should she have a cat? Bin looks concerned as she works, almost sad for her. Maybe she should have a cat. At least she wouldn't be talking to the refrigerator and the blender all the time. Most customers barely notice the pedicurists who sit on low stools across from them on the other side of the basin, Jesus-like washing their feet. They are texting or surfing on their smartphones as the process proceeds, from soaking to rubbing to whittling away at their heels with dremels and emery boards. Scrape, scrape, scrape. How do they bear it? It hurts her to watch. My feet are like puffy loaves of bread stuck on the ends of breadsticks, she thinks, looking down. I envy the curvaceous calves and trim ankles of the dark-haired, dark-skinned woman next to me. It's sandal weather for her this summer, whereas I am perpetual winter in black socks and black tie shoes. She also envies all the adjacent women their youth and mobility. Her own back is wrecked now, and she has difficulty walking and even standing still. The orthopedist says he looked at her illuminated bone scan with extra discs, scoliosis, and arthritis. Do you know you're a mess? Mm, yes, she replied. Yes, I do. Back to the pedicure. Why am I subjecting myself to this ordeal? But she knows why. She has a podiatry appointment this afternoon and wants to be presentable. Bin lifts her feet one by one out of the basin, pats them dry with a clean white towel, meanwhile holding a barely audible conversation with the operators on either side of her. Is she asking for instructions, she wonders? Or, what I truly suspect, is she telling them that her customer is a strange old lady? I suppose you can tell a lot about people from their feet. Maybe she rates them by degree of difficulty. What are mine? Just a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. Bin, meanwhile, slips flimsy paper-like slippers onto her feet, and after that, yellow, spongy toe separators. Then she bends over intently to apply clear polish to each toenail, followed by two coats of pink peppercorn and a final clear coat. No car was ever simonized better. Bin carries her shoes and socks as she leads the way to a seat at the long table. The fingernail drying machines are on top shelf. The toenail drying machines are underneath. Bin then stands next to her, hand extended, telling her the amount to pay. She's probably glad to have this over with so quickly. No massage, no scrubbing, no hot stones. I am both her best and worst customer. The price is the same whether or not I get the full Monty. She tips generously. I get change, Bin says. No, that's for you, Bin. You did a very good job. Bin smiles and her face shines. Thank you, Mrs. Bin then brings the money to the owner sitting behind the cash register. What must her life be like? How did she get here? Did she want to come to America, to this small town in between cities? 
The last time she came to the salon, she saw all the pedicurists arrive in a blue van with the owner. From where? Where do they live? None of her business, of course. She sits now with her feet under the drying station with a machine that glows ruby red as it circulates air over the polished nails. She can't help wondering if, like the ubiquitous X-ray devices of the 1950s shoe stores, this will Chernobyl her feet. Oh, well, she thinks, some radiation effects can take decades to harm you. I'll be long dead by then. Should I tell Tony about my pedicure, she wonders? He'd probably think it's hilarious that his mother is so vain. She hasn't seen her son and daughter-in-law in two years, not since they'd flown in for the funeral. But Tony has multiple sclerosis, and while Adina takes care of him, it's hard for them to travel. They all three video chat regularly, but the truth is she misses them dearly. She'll call when she gets home and tell them about her day. When her toenails are finished drying, she applies lotion to her feet before putting on her socks. As she walks to the door, Ben is bending over another tub of blue water containing a pair of feet. But when Ben sees her, she rises, puts her palms together in front of her chest, and bows. Thank you, Mrs. Good life to you. She finds herself making the same gesture back to the young woman. It feels to her like a kind of musical coda, an ending, but not the end. Ben goes back to her sitting position in front of the bare legs that soon will be massaged and heated with a smooth, warm stone, and she leaves the salon feeling comforted that if she dies in a car accident today or drops dead of a heart attack, she will have a well-groomed foot for the toe tag around her peppercorn pink nails. What a what will the coroner say about that? Third movement, scherzo. The air seems warmer and fresher as she drives to Dr. Karen's office. But still, she is apprehensive about what will happen. At her last appointment with the doctor of podiatry, he poked at her feet with a needle which she didn't feel, and then informed her that she had peripheral neuropathy. He prescribed a medication that might help. Also, he said, you have calluses, pointing to the bottom of her feet. No, really? She tried to sound shocked. Ever since then... She has been working very hard with ointments and mineral oil to minimize these before she sees him again. Don't we all want to put our best foot forward? When she goes into the podiatry office, however, she's in for a shock. She sits in the green lounger covered in plastic to remove her shoes and brand new socks for the nurse and discovers the socks have stained the bottom of her feet black. With her toes pointed to the ceiling, she apologizes profusely. My feet aren't dirty. I just had a pedicure two hours ago. It's the lotion. The socks are new. The nurse affects understanding as the doctor walks in. She repeats her excuse to him, embarrassed. The doctor is in his late 50s and somewhat obese. He has a white beard and jolly blue eyes behind wire-rimmed glasses. He is pleased that the medication he prescribed has helped with a burning sensation and stabbing pain associated with the peripheral neuropathy. However, he informs her that while the medication works at a certain level, it will not cure her condition. Nothing will, and her feet likely won't go back to being normal. The fact is, she tells herself normal is relative. The body is a remarkable organism, but ultimately fallible. Her mother at 95 used to say she didn't feel old in her mind, only in her body, which, in the end, gave out, as it always does. Is your soul pain gone, he asks. He likes puns. I pray for it every night, she says, and goes on to tell him that she's having a problem with her right ankle. She yelps as he twists her foot in and out. That's garden-variety osteoarthritis, he says. 
as if rheumatoid arthritis isn't enough, she thinks. And you also have some... She doesn't quite hear the word. And for the first time, she doesn't ask. I don't need to know, she thinks. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Naming it won't make it go away. He offers her a cortisone shot, saying regretfully, you know it's only a temporary fix. Everything is temporary, she says, and some relief is better than none. It is done quickly and hurts less than her pedicure. As they conclude the visit, she again apologizes for the state of her souls. In consolation, he pats the top of her foot with a gloved hand and tells her that her nails look pretty. That's all that matters for now, he says. Yes, she ruefully agrees, that's all that matters. They laugh in perfect accord. Fourth movement, Allegro. When she gets back into her car, she turns on the radio, and Tonin Dvorak's New World Symphony is playing. The music brings back a memory of the first time she met her husband. He was a guest conductor, rehearsing this piece for an upcoming gala performance. She sat at the piano, entranced by this older man who was dashing in complete control of the orchestra, so passionate and talented. She, who never cared enough to stay more than a few months with any man, immediately fell in love with him. How long ago was that? Years and years. Of course, they'd had their battles, two strong-willed people, two artists, two musicians, but they loved each other and loved their son, a beautiful boy they named Antonin, whose talents lay in science, not music, and who preferred to be called Tony. As the music swells to a crescendo, she feels a painful nostalgia for her piano, which she sold when she could no longer control her twisted fingers. No more piano now, no more husband. On the verge of crying, she hits the button to turn the radio to the next station, any station but this one. The new station is playing a 1970s retrospective and a song by Jim Croce that she recognizes from her youth, I Got a Name. She hums along. When he gets to the lyrics about moving me down the highway, she feels an unfamiliar wanderlust come over her. Wouldn't it be wonderful to drive away? Drive away from here, like the song. Drive to where? And there it was, where? Maybe, she thinks, maybe she could drive to California to visit Tony and Adina. Leave here, just leave everything behind, at least for a while. Perhaps all that matters is the now. Maybe she should take her pretty feet and apply them to the gas pedal and see where they go. What, after all, is waiting for her at home? A half-eaten slice of cheesecake, a half-read history of Rome, no cats. She could close up her house and drive to San Diego. Why not? No one would miss her here. Her bills were paid up, and she just had a cortisone shot in her driving foot, so the pain will go away, at least for a while. Long enough, she thinks, to drive cross-country. Could I really do that, or is this wishful thinking? She turns the car around. Instead of going home, she drives onto the street that leads to the post office. I'll tell them to hold my mail, she thinks. Then I'm committed. She passes the town park and notices for the first time that the golden forsythia are in bloom and the flowering pink dogwood, white tulips, purple azaleas. How did she not see them before? Maybe it's a sign. Spring, rebirth, and all that. She shakes her head. Such obvious symbolism. Have I become so maudlin in my old age? Nevertheless, I think I won't tell the post office to hold my mail. No, I'll have them forward it to Tony and Adina's address in case I decide to go on, she says to her invisible passenger. Then she smiles. Wow, did I just say that out loud? Yes, she answers under her breath. 
Minutes later, she's handing the forwarding mail form to the young postal worker who looks it over. You want this to begin as of tomorrow? Yes. He nods, stamps the date on the form, and puts it into a drawer. Done, he says. Done, she echoes. Driving away in her car, she feels as though someone should clap for her. She's given a great performance. Maybe she should clap for herself, but she has two hands on the wheel. So instead, she shouts to herself, to the world, to her non-existent passenger, Brava, Christina, brava! And her invisible audience cheers. Fini. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next month for Episode 6, a lighthearted essay entitled Anna Garrity's School of Dance. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.